Well, let me begin this morning by saying that uh, without a doubt, the single most important turning point in my life came the summer of 1988. It was for the first time that I attended a Bible teaching church. I, I grown up in church, certainly, I, I did, went to many church services, but in 1988, it was the first time in my life that, that I went to a church where a guy just opened the scripture on Sunday morning. First of all, the pastor didn't wear a dress on Sunday morning, and um, he was just with us and among us was one of us. He just opened the Bible and just read it and explained it and applied it, and, and I understood it, which was one it's a miracle. Oftentimes we went to church, you know, even freshman, sophomore, junior year in college went to church, and I'm like, I don't even know what that guy said. But I just opened the Bible, read, explained, applied it. I'd go home, and I'd look, and I'd say, yep, yep, that's, that's, that's just what this man, Rich Kearns, that's just what Rich said. Yep, that's it's right there. It's just what he said. Yep, it's right there. And, and the Bible then began to become clear to me. And the effect upon my life was great. And particularly, I remember a big impact came on July 10th, 1988. Now, the only reason I know the date, looking back, is because I got a, a tape of this message that was spoken and put it on the website of rockvalleybiblechurch.org. You can listen to it. But the church, Grace Church of the Page, had, had uh, conducted some old-fashioned tent meetings. They, they rented a tent, uh, went outside... I had some open-air services, and they'd asked John MacArthur to come to speak. Now, I didn't know much about him at that time. Um, I heard him on the radio a little bit, but didn't know very much about him. But he was talking about his new book he'd written called The Gospel According to Jesus. And, and the main premise of this book, we have it in the library, I'm, I'm sure. Maybe someone has it checked out. It's a good book to read. The premise of this book is that Jesus doesn't merely call us to make decisions for Christ. Rather, Jesus calls us to abandon our lives completely and to follow Him wholly all of our days. That's the Gospel call in our lives, is to forsake everything that we have and put everything in Jesus' hands and trust Him to save us. Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. That's talking about a wholesale abandonment. Jesus said, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a man who finds a treasure that's hidden in a field and from joy over finding this treasure, he sells all that he has so that he can purchase this land and get this treasure. That's the picture of salvation. It's forsaking all that we have and clinging to Jesus because He's our treasure. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus seeking eternal life, he said, good teacher, what may I do that I might have eternal life? Jesus didn't say, well, come and pray this prayer with me. No, what He said is He said, abandon all of your riches and come to Me. And this man was not willing to do that. Jesus called people to repent that's turn from your wicked ways, believe in the glories of Jesus, and follow Him. Now, it's not that you're saved by your works. You're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not that you're saved by your, your work in following Jesus, or your faithfulness in following Jesus. No, we're saved by faith. But, but faith that's genuine will express itself 
in abandoning yourself and your life in this way. Anyway, that evening in 1988 when John MacArthur spoke, he, he opened up the words of Matthew chapter 7. And um, we just worked through the passage, the last, half, last portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he talked about the uh, narrow gate. And he talked about how few people there are who find the narrow gate, how most go on this broad path which leads to destruction, but few there were that were on this path in the narrow gate entered there. Working through the passage then, he eventually came to these words of Jesus that says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And uh, he went on to explain these are some of the most terrifying words in all of the New Testament. Here you have people standing before Jesus on Judgment Day saying, Jesus, let me into your kingdom. Only to have Him turn them away. Jesus turned away people who were calling on His name. They weren't calling on the name of Buddha. They weren't calling on the name of Muhammad. They were saying, Lord, Lord, addressing Jesus Himself. You are Lord Jesus. Jesus, let us in. They'd heard about Jesus. They thought they were followers of Jesus. They'd done some amazing things in the name of Jesus. But in the end, Jesus reveals they were not His disciples. And He said, I never knew you. Here are people expecting heaven but receiving hell, expecting to live with Jesus forever. Instead, they're cast out of Jesus' presence. Now, when I heard those words as a 24-year-old college student, I was shocked. I was shocked because I'd never heard that before growing up in church. I grew up in a church that had taught the importance of believing in Jesus, to be sure. But there was no emphasis upon a pattern of your life which demonstrates your faith. The emphasis wasn't upon the, the fruit of our lives which shows forth the reality of our faith. As James says, right, faith without works is dead. If you claim to have a faith and your works aren't there, any faith you have is really a dead faith. That was never taught. Rather, the emphasis was on, on professing your faith. As long as you say you believe in Jesus, you're okay. And that's what I had thought. And uh, upon hearing these things, that there are people who who will come to Jesus and He will cast them out, had a profound effect upon my soul. Give me a passion to know Christ. Give me a passion to know His Word. Give me a passion to say, God, I don't want to be that person on that final day. Beyond this, it had an effect upon the way I looked at other professing Christians. For the first three years of my college experience, I looked upon those who had professed a faith in Christ and believed that they would be saved in the end that they would enjoy the, he the glories of heaven together with all the saints merely by a profession of faith. But through the clear explanation of Scripture, and as I saw this over and over, and it's just clear and plain as you just read your Bible plainly, I came to see that those who profess, all who profess to be Christians may not necessarily be genuine followers of Christ, nor will they enter heaven in that final day. There are many who are deluded into thinking their souls are safe in Jesus when in fact they're on the precipice of hell. And many evangelists, by the way, help them in this process. 
because they say, hey, come and pray this prayer. Welcome, you're fine now. Go live in peace. And they go off. I, I remember a neighbor friend of mine, a great, great evangelist, was uh, sharing the gospel and a lot. And he was all excited about this guy he shared the gospel with one time with no thought. Well, is, is he involved in the church? Is he, how, how's he doing? Nothing that just because he prayed a prayer. And, and, and people even go away having comforted that they've prayed these prayers and yet realizing their lives may not match up. They may not genuinely have a faith. They may have a name that they're alive like the church in Sardis, but in fact they may be dead and unbelieving. What's important isn't a decision made to follow Christ. Rather, the important thing is how their decision works itself out. Is it genuine? Because when God changes people, He changes people. When people have faith in Him, they live differently. That's just the reality of the Scriptures. And so, as I looked at these people, my college experience, my senior year, who had professed a faith in Christ, and yet were not living for Him, manifesting no love for God, no passion for Jesus, no desire for Christian fellowship, living in the lusts of flesh, having hard hearts, once I saw them as free from damnation because they professed their faith in Christ, now I began to see them as lost and in need of a Savior. They need to get right with God. They need to look at their hearts and examine them and test them to see whether they have come to faith in Christ. And my heart for you this morning, I think as I stand before the Lord, final day, say, people of Rock Valley Bible Church, Lord, how have I presented them to you? Have I presented them complete in Christ? That's what Paul labored for in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. And, and my prayer for you is he wouldn't be deluded into this thinking. That you wouldn't be deluded into thinking your soul is secure because some prayer you prayed or because some church services that you attended. And I'm all into prayers and I'm all into people seeking the Lord. I'm all into people asking Jesus into their heart. Though that's not biblical. I understand what they mean. They just say, God, come and help me. But, but let us know that genuine faith will display itself in our lives. And this morning, I want you all to test to see, do I have a real faith? Is my faith genuine or is it just this profession? Because I want you to have a faith that continues to the end, which is a real faith. That's the text that we have this morning. Do you have a faith in Christ? Are you persevering in that faith? Are you pressing on in your fight to believe? I want you this morning to examine your hearts. It's the title of my message this morning. Examine your hearts. If you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3. In recent weeks, we've focused our attention upon our hearts because I believe that's what the text has done. Two weeks ago, my exhortation to you was this. Don't harden your hearts. Exhortation comes in verse 8. It says here, don't harden your hearts. And then we looked in that message in the nation of Israel how their hearts were hard. They had seen the miraculous plagues that God had done. They had seen His blessing, His, His miraculous provision for them, but they were unbelieving in God's care for them. They, they thought, oh, you brought us out here in the wilderness to die. They were unbelieving and their hearts were hard. And God says, don't harden your hearts as they do, this they did. And that's the summons two weeks ago. Don't harden your hearts. Last week, my exhortation to you was this. Care for your hearts. As it comes in verse 12. Take care, brethren that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. We looked at spiritual heart disease and said that we are all susceptible to that. A heart that wanders and we need to be aware of the disease. We need to practice the cure, which is mutual encouragement. It's the reason 
we gather together. It's a purpose of that. Verse 13, encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today. Sanctification is a community project as I encourage you and as you encourage me to press on in our faith until the end. So don't harden your hearts. Care for your hearts. And today is examine your hearts. Examine your hearts. Just as physical checkups are good and needed for physical hearts, so also spiritual checkups are needed for spiritual hearts as well. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul wrote, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, he says. I find that sometimes people don't want to do that. And then Paul knew that. He says, Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. It's my heart today. I want you to go into the spiritual doctor's office and, and apply a variety of tests. You know, you go to the doctor's office, they, they take out some blood, they take it to the laboratory and they come back with the results. I want you to take out some spiritual blood from your, from your hearts, sift it through these tests and see how they, see how they come out. And basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you two questions. I believe that they come from the text. Two questions, which are our lab tests this morning. First one, are you holding fast? That's what verse 14 says. Are you holding fast? For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. The call of verse 14 is that we hold fast until the end. Holding fast. The idea here is that we have a, a death grip going to cling to Jesus, going to hold fast until the end. We are going to believe Him. We are going to trust Him. We are going to cling to Him and hold on to Him because He is our life. That's what it's talking about here. Holding fast. You ever seen those trapeze artists do their flips from one swinging trapeze to the other and they flip around? How do they grab themselves? It's like with a death grip, right? One grabs the other wrist, the other grabs there. They're just holding on for dear life lest they fall down below. And that's what the writer here to the Hebrews is telling us. Don't let go lest you fall and hit the ground. And that's the idea here is that we are holding fast to Jesus. We've found Jesus to be our all in all. We've put all of our eggs in one basket. And we'll hold on into till the day that we die. We're not, we're not trusting Jesus in something else. We're not trusting Jesus and trusting our works or trusting Jesus and trusting our heritage or trusting Jesus. No, with both hands we are holding on to Him, holding firm to the Gospel. That's what's being talked about here in verse 14. It says, we're holding fast our assurance. That is the assurance of the message that we have heard. We are sure that Jesus Christ is the one who saved us, who died for us. And that's what we're holding on to. The NIV says we hold fast our confidence. That is our, our firm assurance, our firm confidence in the faith. The ESV says our original confidence. The message is a paraphrase. says this, we keep our grip on the sure thing we start out with. This is the sure thing that we have, the Gospel of Christ. And we are holding on to that because it is the rock upon which we stand. Now the original hearers had heard of Jesus. They had heard that Jesus was their Messiah come into the flesh. They heard about His death and His burial, His resurrection, His ascension. And in some measure, people in this church had embraced those things. Just like in some measure, we have embraced those things. But there was a danger of letting go of some of those things. The writer 
here tells us to hold fast. The original hearers were tempted to let go. They, they were maybe holding on to this and then they began to hold on to some of their Jewish traditions, their, their festivals and feasts. And, and thereby, when you do this, you know what actually you're doing? You're abandoning Jesus. Because Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. It's only this way. It's not this way. And there's the importance of clinging to Christ with both hands. In the days of the Old Testament, God had promised refuge to those who would enter into the tent of the Lord and hold on to the horns of the altar. And there are instances of people in trouble running into the, the, the courtyard of God, into the tent of meeting, and holding on to the horns of the altar. And a good example of that was Joab. When Solomon became king, he was cleaning house. All those who weren't faithful to David weren't going to be faithful to him. They're getting the axe. Joab was one of those people. And so he heard what Solomon was doing. He saw what Solomon was doing. He ran into the tent of the Lord, held on to the horns of the altar, pleading mercy, pleading safety. And Benaiah, the minister of justice, came in for him and he called him to come out. And Benaiah said to Joab, Come out! And Joab said this, No, I will die here clinging to the horns of the altar. So we have need also to hold on to Christ and say, I'm not letting go. This is where I'm dying. I'm holding fast to Jesus. My refuge is in the cross of Christ. And I'll just say, church family, that no one ever perished at the foot of Christ. No one ever perished at the foot of the cross. These people saying, Lord, Lord, were, were doing this. Yeah, they liked Jesus one hand. On the other hand, they were doing something else. But no one, both arms around the cross, ever perished. But once you let go of the cross, your souls are in danger. It's no wonder that Paul delivered the Gospel of the Corinthians, he said, as first importance. This is the first thing he said when he went to Corinth. This is really the only thing that he said while he was in Corinth. This is the priority. He said, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And you even see that here in chapter 3, verse 14. We're holding fast the beginning of our insurance, right? The thing we, we heard at the beginning, that's what we're holding fast to. And we're holding fast to the, the true Gospel we heard so that we can keep it on until the end. And in fact, Paul, even in 1 Corinthians 15, where he speaks about the Gospel, describes the Gospel, all about Jesus dying according to the Scriptures, buried, raised according to the Scriptures. Then he says this, This is the Gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which also you're saved. And then he gives this little if. You're saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. In other words, he's saying this. It's not just a belief one day and abandonment the other day. Now, genuine faith is an enduring faith. And that's what writer's saying here first in Hebrews 3. We've become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. That is the end of our lives or until Christ comes back. As long as we have breath, this is what we're doing. We're clinging to the cross of Christ 
We're clinging to Jesus, our high priest, our help, our better sacrifice, the one who's better than Moses and better than the angels, who has a better covenant. We are clinging to him. And so I ask you this day, how's your grip? How's your grip? Are you, are you locked around the cross? Or are you loosening a bit? Are you confident cross where you're going to go or you're letting loose suppose you're on a cliff a big mountain and you know you've, you've, you've been some rock climbing and you're down and you're climbing up and you've reached the point where you can't go any further but you can't go down because it's easier to go up than it is to go down and you're hanging there on the, on the cliff and, and then a rescue worker comes and he throws you a rope how are you going to hold on to the rope alright pull me up what are you doing you are both hands in depth grip and say, okay, pull me up. And that, that's the picture here. We need to hold on to Christ. We need to, to hold on and cling all the way. All the way. Endurance until the end is what's important. I mean, firm until the end. All the way until safety. All the way until we see Jesus in glory. We have glorified bodies and we will sin no more. When God will wipe away tears from our eyes, where there's no longer any mourning or death or crying or pain, where we see Him in, in holiness and purity and worship Him without sin. In that day, you can let go of your rope and then, and then grab onto Jesus again is what we'll do. I want you to see, Hebrews, this is a theme. This isn't just a one verse here, chapter 3, verse 14. This, this uh, clinging until the end is all the way throughout Hebrews. It's going to be our theme here for the next year and a half, whatever it takes us to get through Hebrews. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to take Hebrews and just go, go in your Scriptures. Chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. In other words, we need to continue to believe the message we've heard about the Messiah. Don't drift in your faith. Don't, don't fall away. Continue to hold on to it is what the writer says. Or we saw in chapter 3, verse 12 last week. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. In other words, right? we need believing hearts. We need hearts of faith that don't fall away, that continue on. Chapter 4, verse 1, which we will look at next week. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. In, order, in other words, there are promises that God has placed out there for us and don't come short of it by only holding on one hand. Come to it completely with both hands, firm until the end. We need to press on so we don't come short. Chapter 4, verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. In other words, make efforts to believe in the promises that God has made for us. Don't fall short of them. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching of the price about the Christ. Let's press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Listen, press on to maturity. Right? Live lives worthy of the Gospel. Trust Him in all ways. We can't just rest upon what we've learned thinking we're okay. We need to press on in our faith. Or chapter 6, verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. It's almost the exact same terminology of our text this morning. Each one of you. 
That's all of us showing the same diligence so as to realize this hope until the end. It says in verse 12, so that you don't be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Our hope comes through faith. It comes through patience. It comes through a believing and waiting heart. We're not supposed to rest upon some profession of faith made some time ago. We're not to be a spiritual sluggard. Rather, we make efforts to believe and to press on and cling and hold to Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 35, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. We've got this confidence that we have, this assurance in Jesus. We need to hold on to it. There's a great reward. There's heaven awaiting for us. Verse 36, You have need of endurance. We all have need of endurance. We all have need to hold on so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. You need to continue on is the call here. Verse 39. And the call here, he says, there are those who shrink back, but he says, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. There, this sermon is what I've told you before. He's preaching. He said, listen, we're not of those who shrink back, but we are those who have faith. And faith is what preserves our soul. And then in chapter 11, we see the emphasis upon the sort of faith that, to which we are called. It's this enduring active faith. It was the faith of Abel, verse 4, that even died for offering up a good sacrifice. He's killed by Cain. It's the faith of Enoch, who walked with God, verse 5. It's the faith of, faith of Noah, verse 6, who, who built an ark, verse 7 rather. He built an ark, even though he'd never seen the flood come before. Because God said that was a faith, that was a, an enduring faith. And he had to endure all the mocking and all the scorn, 120 years, people making fun of him. He endured until the end and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. It's the faith of Abraham who, who left his country, not knowing where he's going. It's the faith of Abraham who sacrificed his child Isaac, or almost did. He didn't understand everything, but he trusted the Lord. It's the faith of Moses who considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt, verse 26. And then in verse 32, he goes on to speak about more people who have, who have put forth faith. What time will fail me? We tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. So apart from us, they would not be made perfect. But these all are models for us of what genuine faith looks like. They, they, they make great victories. Conquering nations. Conquering kingdoms. Shutting mouths of lions. Quenching the power of fire. But, but also endure great persecutions like mockings and scourgings and prison and martyrdom. Trusting in Jesus firm until the end. Then the call comes in chapter 12. Again, this persevere. Therefore, chapter 12, verse 1, since we are 
have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, right? Since the historic people we have seen have all conquered by faith, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run here it is with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, we have many, many that have gone before us, lived lives of persevering faith, so let us follow their example and live in the same manner as they did in faith. Considering Jesus, right? Verse 3. This is what we're to consider about Jesus. Consider Jesus who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Right? Let's not falter in our faith. Let's continue steadfastness of our hope. Let us press on considering and looking at Jesus who Himself suffered. And then the application comes in verse 4. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin, have you? You've not been killed yet, have you? No, you've not. You've not resisted the point of Him, so, so continue to press on. In verse 15, chapter 12, verse 15, don't come short of the grace of God. See, there's this grace there that we need not to come short of, but we need to realize that everything we have is the entire grace of God. See to it, verse 25 says, that do not refuse Him who is speaking. Don't refuse Him. Rather, let us walk by faith. The call of the book of Hebrews is a call to persevering faith. It's a call to believe in Jesus, to draw near to Jesus, to hold fast to Jesus, and to press on in following Him. And that's where we have our assurance. That's where we have our confidence. That's where we have our trust. That's where we can have our boast. So we continue on and press on to Him in faith. Nowhere in Hebrews, nor in the Bible, really, do you see anywhere people given assurance based upon some profession of faith. It's the profession of faith that continues to love and cherish the one who died for them. He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. He, he died for us so we would, might live to Him. As we live to Him, we walk worthy of the Gospel. The call always in the Scriptures, and especially in the book of Hebrews, is to continue on in our pursuit of the Lord. And those souls that merely profess a faith and yet have abandoned it or aren't, aren't pressing on are in danger of coming short of the grace of God. They're in danger of falling in the end. And so, this morning, church family, I ask you, are you holding fast Is Jesus Christ your only hope? Do you sing as we sing from time to time, Jesus, you are my life. Oh, precious Christ. You are to me the pearl of greatest price. My love for you will never die. Jesus, you are my life. I come to you. I run to you. There's no greater joy than in knowing you. See, that's the heart of a genuine believer that longs to come to Jesus. Do you pray, O holy fire, love's purest light, burn all desires till you, O Lord, are my delight. Even see what the songwriter's saying? He's saying, I'm running to you, Jesus, but yet I know that there are other delights in my life and I don't want them. And so I'm pleading that you would burn those away so that I would come to you and run to you and cling to you all my days. Do you say, I know that without the shedding of blood, Jesus... I don't stand a chance before the Father. And you say, God, I'm coming not on my own merits, I'm coming on the merits of Jesus Christ and His blood atoned for my sin. 
That's what chapter 3, verse 14 is calling us to. But this isn't the only time in the book of Hebrews He calls us to hold fast. Look at chapter 10. So go back there to chapter 10. Verse 23 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And there it is again. In light of all the things, verse 19 through 22, you can read them later, that are true about Jesus. He is a high priest. We can enter there by the blood of Jesus. We ought to draw near to Him and we ought to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold it until the end. Also in chapter 4, verse 14, he speaks about holding fast. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us cling to our confession. Let's hold fast to it. Are you holding fast? Are you holding fast? This is your first spiritual blood test. Go back to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. We've dealt with the second half of the verse. Let's deal with the first half of the verse. It says this, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now, now pay attention here to the tenses of these verbs. <clears throat> our perseverance is evidence that we become partakers. In other words, our perseverance doesn't earn us anything. I'm not saying that continuing on earns us anything, merits us anything. It's not that that results in our final salvation. Rather, our perseverance is an indication of our salvation. That's what it says here in verse 14. Our perseverance is an evidence of our salvation. It doesn't say we will become partakers of Christ if we hold fast until the end. Becoming a partaker of Christ isn't in the future. It says that we have become a partaker of Christ in the past if, here's the condition, that we hold fast until the end. And holding fast to the end, with the truth be known, is really an evidence and a sign that you have it in the first place. Demonstrates that we indeed are partakers of Christ. Now, that phrase, partakers of Christ, it means that we have shared with Jesus. When you have a meal together, you partake of the bread together. I've got the bread, you got the bread, we both eat the bread, we're there. And when you're partakers with Jesus, you, you have, have, have some part of Him. You become a sharer with Him. You're joined with Him. That's why so often Paul in his epistles just speak about being in Christ. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. We are in Him. We are in Him because we become a partaker of Him. The holding fast to the end demonstrates that we are indeed today partakers in Christ. Same thing said in chapter 3, verse 6. Christ was faithful as a son over His house, whose house we are today, right now, we're part of His church, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. In other words, right, we are today His house if we continue on until the end. Continuing on to the end shows that we are sharing in Christ today. It's the best way to understand these words. Enduring faith demonstrates genuine faith. Enduring faith demonstrates saving faith. And, and you know, the Bible speaks this way throughout the Scriptures. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 was, was that way. If indeed you stand, if you have believed, unless he says you've believed in vain, unless you've professed this belief, but it's an empty belief, unless you have an empty belief. But no, but this is where you stand. This is the Gospel. This is how you're forgiven if you continue to stand. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, 21 through 23. 
Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, that was our old self, yet now he is reconciled to you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. There is the great salvation. That, that's what we know. We are dead in our sins. And God makes us alive, reconciled us to Jesus, that He might reconcile us to God the Father. And then Paul says in the very next verse, verse 23, this is true, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moving away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. You were dead, reconciled to God, and that's true if indeed you persevere and continue in the faith. That's how Paul says it. It's the heart of what Jesus says. You'll know them by their fruits. You look at the fruits and that's how you know them. Is it good fruit? Continues to the end. Is it bad fruit? You look. Jesus then uses illustrations. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? No. So every good tree bears good fruit and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Every tree that does bear good fruit but does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, so then you'll know them by their fruits. Just look at the fruits. And the fruit of genuine faith is enduring faith. It may look like people have it for a time. But if it doesn't endure, endure it's not genuine. Think about Jesus when He told the, the uh, story of the four soils. Remember there's the the hard soil along the path. Then there was a, a rocky soil. Then there was a thorny soil. Then there was a good soil. In the path, there was no life there because the Word just came and bounced off. But think about this. In the rocky soil, in the thorny soil, in the good soil, all the pr- plants sprouted up. They showed some life in them. They received the Word with joy. There was happiness there. They gladly prayed a prayer. But, but what did Jesus say is important? Not how they sprouted up, but how they continued on. Isn't it the end that's important? Isn't that what Jesus emphasizes? Because He says, interpreting this, says the rocky soil has no root. So when affliction or persecution arises, He falls away. He was just a plant that sprouted for a time and is gone now. The seed in the thorny soil grows up and has no room to grow. The, thieves are, the, the weeds and thistles are choking it out. The deceitfulness of wealth is what Jesus called that too. So it becomes unfruitful. It doesn't grow up. doesn't have any nourishment. just falls away. But the seed upon the good soil that continued on to bear fruit, right, continued to the end of the usefulness of the plant. And the implication there is that that's the good soil because it can endure to the end. So are you holding fast? See, it's interesting. In the Christian life, it's not how you start that's important. It's how you finish that's important. Holding until the end. But this is good news. It's good news that it's it's how you finish and not how you just started because we have an opportunity, all of us, to hold firm until that final day. In fact, today you have an opportunity to do that. You might say, you know what, God, I've I've been drifting a little bit. Like in 1988, I was just kind of drifting through life thinking I was a Christian. I remember being so prideful that I was a Christian and then I heard this, I just said, wow. I, you know, it's a day when I changed my, my attention. And, and astonishing, Yvonne and I were talking about that's like 20, 22 years ago. And I said, I need to fix and rivet my attention upon Jesus and learn of Him so I might not be one of those. And maybe today's a call to you. 
says, today I'm not hardening my heart. God, I'm, I'm just going to come to you softly and tenderly. I'm going to gather with the saints, verse 13, so I can be encouraged and encourage one another. And, and Lord, I long to hold fast until the end. Help me, O oh Lord. Maybe that's you. Maybe you examined your heart. Maybe you found wanting. I say if that's you, then, then plead to the Lord who can help you and sustain you. you know, this death grip we have is very symbolic about the, the death grip that we have with Christ. And it's not, even if we let go, God will still hold us on. He says, hey, hold on to me, hold on to me, hold on to me. And then, and then we start holding on to Him more. And He will help us in our weakness to hold on to Him. Jesus says that those who come to Him is in His hand and no one can take them out of His hand. It's a perfect picture there of our salvation. But He calls us to cling to Him for His glory. And it's the end, the finish that's important. And it's good news because today we can change and repent and say, God, I need to redirect my life. I need to go back to this. And that's exactly where the writer of the Hebrews continues on. If you look at verse 15, he said, While it said, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me. And he's, just, he's quoting there from Psalm 95, which he quoted in verses 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. He just quotes the first part of that. And if you look up there with your eyes, up to verse 7, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me. And then he continues on. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Verse 17. With whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. My first question to you has been this. Are you holding fast? My second question to you this is, are you believing? Are you believing you trust I mean, that, That's really the definition of what holding fast is. There's, there's synonyms in many ways. Believing. We see that verse 19, the Israelites were not able to enter because of unbelief. I think that's the point of verse 15, 16, 17, and 18 is, is belief. So I said, the, he goes back to verse 7, quoting this first part. And we see even just by quoting the, the first part of this, he really has in mind that whole section there. Because what's going to happen in verses 16, 17, 18, he's going to just exposit the Scripture. And, and I really love this because it is a rare instance in the New Testament where we see some, a quote from the Old Testament and then it, it worked through and applied and, and, and taught. And all the applications and exhortations are coming out of that just clearly because he quotes Psalm 95, explains it, goes back to Psalm 95, explains it. And we're going to even see in chapter 4 him coming back to Psalm 95. Chapter 4, verse 3, he quotes from it again. Chapter 4, verse 7, he quotes from it again. And I love that because that's what I desire to do with my ministry here among you. It's just to open the Bible and to read it and explain it and apply it and trust that God by His Spirit will do His work. Well, in doing this, what he does in verse 16, 17, 18, he asks three questions. And after each of these three questions, gives an answer. And his answer also is in the form of a question, but the answer question is really an answer to the question. It's not really a question seeking a question, all right? If that makes sense. You have questions? Verse 16. Let's look at the question. Who provoked him when they had heard? He picks up this word provoked from verse 15. Don't harden your hearts when they provoked me. And so we say, okay, now let's think about this. Who is it that provoked him? Who, who did this? And then he asks this question with a rhetorical question. Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? The answer here, and keep this, is that everyone did. Everyone provoked the Lord. 
Everyone who saw and witnessed the marvelous miracles of the Lord, they all did. Okay? And then in verse 17 says, the next question, with whom was he angry for 40 years? Again, the writer pulls back from Psalm 95, which actually in this case, we look at verses 9 and 10. He was angry for 40 years. In verse 9, we see that they saw my works for 40 years. In verse 10, we see that I was angry with that generation. So he's thinking, for 40 years, God was angry with this generation. And, and the question here comes, well, who was he angry with? Who was God angry with for 40 years? Just explaining this. And then verse 17, was it not with those who sinned? The Israelites who sinned by provoking the Lord. So you say, who provoked him? The Israelites did. And God was angry with people. Who was he angry with? He was angry with those same people who provoked the Lord by sinning. And then verse 18, we have the, the last question. To whom do you swear they have not enter his rest? And again, he just, he's just picking apart Psalm 95, asking questions from verse 11 we see. They swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, so to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest? And then the answer comes in the last half of verse 18. Was it not with those who were disobedient? See, it was their disobedience that in that way God prohibited them from entering the rest. Verse 16 establishes who provoked the Lord. They all did. Verse 17 establishes who God was angry with. It was all of them. And then verse 18 establishes God's decree. Who it was that they got this decree? It was to all of them that they shall not enter my rest. And the conclusion, I think the main point of all this discussion is this. Verse 19, So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. All these people came out, they provoked the Lord. God was angry with them, says you're not entering. So who, why didn't they enter? They didn't enter fundamentally because they didn't believe. So that's the application for us. Are you believing? Are you believing? This is the same as my first point. Are you holding fast? Is Christ your only hope? Are you believing what He's told you? Are you clinging to God's Word? Well, let's see this illustrated. The, the events to which the writer refers comes from Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And so how about you turn back there in your Bibles. We won't come back here to Hebrews until next week. We'll pick it up in chapter 4. But here we see Hebrews chapter 13 and chapter 14. This is the story, and I want you to see how they were unbelieving, and I want you to say, are you unbelieving in the same way? Where God provokes your heart, I just call you to repent and turn and just plead to be like Caleb and Joshua, not like the other spies. Numbers 13 finds us, Israel in the wilderness, having been redeemed by God out of slavery. The ten plagues went. They got out. The, the pillar of fire protected Israel from the pursuing Egyptians. They passed through the Red Sea and the Egyptians drowned. They found themselves with bitter water. God makes it sweet. They find themselves without food. God's providing manna for them. They find themselves thirsty. God's providing uh, water for them. They're just on the precipice, just beginning their wandering. They're going around straight into the land of Canaan. Before they get there, here's the plan. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan. Which, God says, I am going to give this to the sons of Israel. 
You shall send a man from each of the father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. Here's the plan. Go and spy out the land. I'm going to give the land to the 12 tribes of Israel, so take a leader from each of the 12 tribes. 12 guys. Go out and take the land. So Moses, it says in verse 3, sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. And then verses 4 through 16, we see the names of all these people. Buried deep in there, the name of Joshua and the name of Caleb, who are heroes of the story. Verse 17, when Moses sent them to spot the land, here's the instruction, he says, go into the Negev, which is the southern portion, the dry portion, and then go up in the hill country. So enter by the south. See what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak and whether there are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How's the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. And the time was for the first ripe grapes. And so he just say, okay, go spy out the land. Ask all these questions. What's it like? Because we're going to conquer this land. So we've got to figure out everything that's going on with this land. Uh, I'm not sure why they started the south. Maybe they're looking as travelers, looking like travelers, just traveling through. I- I'm not exactly sure because there is there is uh, the great travel route right through from uh, Africa to Europe. goes right there through Israel. Maybe that's what they were doing. But find out everything that's going on with this land. And so the spies went, verse 21. They went and spied out the land. Tells them how far they spied out the land. And then, verse 23, they came to the valley of Eshcol. From there they cut down a branch, a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men, some of the pomegranates and figs. So they were being obedient to Moses. And what he said, he said, bring back some fruit. So here's some fruit. And then, verse 25, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of the 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Here's a fruit. We cut it down. Now let's tell you about the land in front of everybody. Moses, Aaron, and everybody. Okay, we're, God has told us, chapter 13, verse 1, to go into land. I'm going to give it to you. Okay? Let me tell you the report of the land. We went in to the land where you sent us. And it certainly does flow with milk and honey. This is fruit. Look at how luscious these grapes are. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. These are giants. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea, by the side of the Jordan. They are covering the land like grasshoppers. I don't know where we're going to conquer all these people. They're all over the place. Now, Caleb, when he heard this, quieted the people. Caleb, of course, the hero, and he says, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Why is he saying this? He's believing. He's believing what God said. I'm going to give you to the sons of Israel. Chapter 13, verse 1. But the men, again, verse 31 through 33, said, no, we can't. We can't take it. We can't take it. That point... Chapter 14, verse 1, when all the congregation then looked and evaluated what was going on, here's the word all. All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Haran. The whole congregation said, whether we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. 
Depose, let's impeach Moses, let's go back to Egypt, is what they're saying at this point. And this, by the way, is exactly like they've always grumbled and complained in the past. God has, has cared for them, he's nourished them, he's brought them food. The manna, by the way, at this time is still coming. They're not thirsty at this time. God is providing for them in a wonderful way. And yet, verse, chapter 14, verse 1, it's all the congregation. Chapter 14, verse 2, all the sons of Israel, the whole congregation said this. And then, we see the heroes of our story again. Moses and Aaron fell on their face in the presence of the assembly of the congregation. Verse 6, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, tore their clothes and spied out the land. And they spoke and said, No, the land we passed through to spy out is exceedingly good land. And here it is. These are responding by faith. If the Lord is pleased with us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. For their protection has been removed from them, for the Lord is with us. Do not fear. Do you see those, the, the emphasis upon His faith there? Verse 8, if the Lord's pleased with us, He will bring us into this land, according to chapter 13, verse 1. Do not fear the people. They are our prey. The, their protection has been removed because God has removed it from Him. They, Joshua and Caleb are believing God. And yet, what did the congregation do? All the congregation, chapter, verse 10, all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Let's stone them! Let's stone them! Let's stone them! These are the believing people. Let's stone them! And only a miraculous intervention by God stopped that. The, tent, the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel to stop what was about to happen. Had it not been the divine intervention of God, Joshua and Caleb would have perished. Then Moses intercedes. The Lord, the Lord said, How long are these people going to spurn me? How long? How long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs I'll perform in their midst. And I think rightly, God could probably come to many of us and just say, how long, how long do I need to show myself true to you? How long? Will they believe? How long? You've seen your parents walk in faith and trust the Lord. You've seen God mightily provide. How long do I need to continue to be with you? And then God says in verse 12, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. I'll make you, Moses, into a nation greater and mightier than I. And then I love verse 13. Moses says, no, 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 no. Don't destroy them, God. These are your people. Be faithful to your people. And then he pleaded. Much, by the way, I think like Jesus pleads for us. God may be angry with us and our sin. God, Jesus comes before the Father and says, no, 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 God, remember, that's a sin. They're believing, they're trusting in me, and, and Jesus constantly propitiates the Lord for our sins. Because he's our high priest. I mean, is, is that not the message of Hebrews? He's our high priest. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He's always living, he's always praying for us, pleading our case before God, actually pleading his case before God. Here Moses pleads the people's case before God. Don't dispossess them because then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength you brought up this people from their midst and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of the people. For you, O Lord, are seen 
eye to eye while your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this peopleless one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised by the oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. In other words, he's saying, listen, this is your reputation is at stake, God. Your fame is at stake. So keep your people. Be faithful to your people. But now I pray, verse 17, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Pleading pardon before the Lord for the people just like Jesus pleads for us. Remember a few weeks ago, I saw in Hebrews chapter 3, how Moses is um, like a high priest. Here he's acting like a high priest. Verse 20, So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And then here's these all verses again. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, the ten plagues in Egypt, and then all these miraculous things in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into this land which he entered in, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Now, have you noticed here, ten times God speaks about how they spurned him in verse 22? not counting the plagues. Uh, I've counted up before ten instances. And they're easy to count no matter which ones do you count of how often they've spurned the Lord and, and uh, they've complained about the manna because it's too bland. And they, God said, don't, don't pick it up on the Sabbath day. Uh, you'll have double the day before. But they pick it up the Sabbath day and they try to hoard it and it goes bad. And, and uh, even the golden calf, when they had the, the golden calf that was uh, spurning the Lord complaining against them generally, a discontent that they had before the Lord. They, they rebelled against Him. Just time after time after time. You can count ten times if you want. And God finally says, you know what, that's enough. That's enough. You've not believed in Me. You are not going to enter the land. As it says down in verse 28, 27, God says, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against Me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they're making against Me. And by the way, the grumbling and the complaining is a manifestation of unbelief. If they believed, they wouldn't be grumbling and complaining. They'd just say, God, we're trusting. How are you going to provide for us? And then, it says, as I live, just as I've spoken in my hearing, I will surely do this to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness. By the way, that's Hebrews chapter 3, verse 17. For 40 years, they're going to fall in the wilderness. And then it speaks about all the numbered men, 20 and older, except for Caleb and Joshua. It says, verse 32, Your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Again, Hebrews chapter 3 coming out there. Verse 34, According to the number of your days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day that you bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, you will know my opposition. And, and they saw his works for 40 years, is what Hebrews chapter 3 says, because of their unbelief. Finally, verse 36. As for the man whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land. 
Even those men who'd brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord, but Joshua and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive of those men who went to spy out the land. They all died because they didn't believe. But Caleb and Joshua, because they believed, entered the rest. And I just I say to you, are you believing? Let us not... Um, I say this... Let us not be duped into thinking that just because we're in church, we're okay. This is the whole congregation of Israel. And they saw great miracles. And as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God was not well pleased with most of them. With all of them except two. So surely among us, there are some who are not believing. I just call you to believe and trust I believe in trust is different. than the, We haven't had a, a revelation like this that says God's going to give you this land, but we do have the revelation that Jesus Christ will forgive our sins if we just believe and trust in Him. And let's cling to that and let's let that work itself out in our lives so we live differently and trust Him through these days. So let's hold fast. Let's believe. And if you're not holding fast, you're not believing, I call you to see the danger of your souls. Well, let's give this to the Lord. I know I've gone over. That's, that's how it is. We'll trust the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for Your grace and kindness upon us. I pray that we would evaluate our hearts correctly. I pray that we would um, see where we stand before You. I pray for Your grace to keep our fingers tight on the cross of Christ. Pray for your grace to help us keep believing. You gave us faith, as it says in Hebrews, Ephesians 2. So, keep it persevering in us, O Lord, we pray. We pray. Now, I pray for those of us here today who, who are slipping, who are drifting, who are coming short, I pray your grace, turn them, show them the glories of Jesus. They might rest upon him. I pray for all of us that we would cling willingly. That the husband hugs his wife because he loves her. As we cling our hug our children because we love them, it's not a burden to do that. I pray that we would find you not a burden but a delight. May we hug you and embrace you and find in you our all and all. May the things of this earth be strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May that be our heart. When we wander, Lord, I pray you'd help us and strengthen us. Burn away all desires so that you are our one delight. Help us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we dismiss, just have a few announcements. We are going to have um, potluck today, if you can stay.